welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, June 11th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Margot Sanger Katz in the New York Times. Good morning, guys. Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, all. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Morning, everyone. Later in this episode, we have an interview with Mike Mackert, who teaches health communication at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas, Austin. We'll talk about why public health professionals haven't done a better job helping the public understand what it needs to know about the coronavirus. But first, the week's news. So let us posit that three full months into this pandemic, we seem to be more confused than ever. I suppose we need to start with the World Health Organization, which this week kind of stepped in it over the issue of asymptomatic transmission of the coronavirus. First, a top official said it was rare. Then the WHO had to call a press conference to walk that back. I feel like this is a microcosm of everything about this illness. It's not just that we don't know a lot, but that what we think we know keeps changing. How do you communicate that to the public? You guys are writing about this every day. I think it's just extremely hard. Um, You know, one thing that I've been doing is like every two or three weeks, I make a round of calls to 10 epidemiologists and just ask them like, do we know what the infection fatality rate is for this disease? Do we know like what the most common ways that it's transmitted are? What's the reproduction rate? Do we know what the herd immunity rate is? And all those numbers are somewhat correlated. So it's different ways of asking the same question. But the thing that has struck me is that even as this disease has spread around the world and around the United States has resulted in all of these mass fatalities, that scientists still don't know the answers to some really basic questions about COVID-19. It is a new disease. It is hard to study these things. It is, I think, a reminder to all of us that we have to be really humble about the fact that everything that is being learned is kind of on the fly, subject to change. The science is happening very rapidly. And I think the public really wants a lot of certain clear messages. I know myself in my own life, I would like some really clear guidelines for what's safe and not safe, you know, when we can get back to normal and clear answers to a lot of these questions. And I think that obviously uh, there are various people who have failed in their communication of the uncertainty of the complexity, but I think it is a real challenge because it just feels like the ground is shifting beneath our feet and there is so much that remains unknown and a sort of I think a dissatisfaction by everyone, you know, by me and by the public, uh, that we still don't know the answers to these really basic questions. You know, I I have to say, I do not envy a lot of the governors and other public policymakers who have had to make these incredibly consequential consequential decisions, even as the science seem, is unfolding and we're learning more about this. I mean, even things like figuring out how many of the cases we're capturing, we're having different rates of testing in different states and different countries. So it's hard to sometimes compare the case fatality rate because we don't actually know the total number of cases. I think in the case of the World Health Organization, talking to folks who are familiar with the organization, the way they've described to me is you've got scientists and epidemiologists there who sometimes aren't the best at 
like communicating things in ways that the public can understand. And so they've had a couple times over the last few months where that communication hasn't really gotten across very clearly and they've had to kind of uh, come back and clarify what they actually meant. Um, And of course, this has fueled criticisms from Republicans and conservatives who were already skeptical of the organization's response. And then, of course, President Trump, who is quite antagonistic toward the WHO and has been promising to defund it, etc. But, you know, even people who tend to be quite supportive of the WHO seem to be quite disappointed this week in sort of this latest instance where you you seem to have a pretty clear statement on Monday from their officials that's saying that um, saying that asymptomatic transmission was rare and then basically seemed to reverse that in this press conference on Tuesday, where then they acknowledged that there are a lot of other studies suggesting perhaps uh, asymptomatic transmission could count for as much as 41%, which is quite a big difference than saying that it's rare. So, but I I think, you know, so on one hand, um, you know, you could give the WHO a bit of a pass because this has been a very, very hard thing to communicate and the science hasn't always been clear. On the other hand, a lot of people really look to the organization for information, particularly, I would note, developing countries that don't have the same public health infrastructure and are really looking to more international experts to help them understand what is the risk in their country and what kind of mitigation should be taken. Apparently, the problem with the WHO is that she failed to make the distinction between asymptomatic transmission, people who never, who get the virus but never get sick, and pre-symptomatic transmission, which people who get the virus get sick but haven't gotten sick yet. Um, and, and Mel, you know, you you're, have the added complication of having to run this through Congress, who are not good at, like, fine distinctions like that that turn out to be super important. Right. Yeah. And I think that this, you know, like Margot and Paige were saying, like, A, this really underscores how much we are still learning and trying to figure out about this. But as Paige mentioned, this is coming at a time that President Trump has promised to defund the World Health Organization. Members of Congress don't really seem to know exactly what that means in terms of heading into the appropriations process. You know, they're regularly providing funds for global health that go to the World Health Organization. Members of Congress are trying to figure out, like, okay, if you're saying the World Health Organization, how do different global health programs, PEPFAR, other things that are working, polio vaccinations, things that, you know, the World Health Organization has done successfully and bipartisan members of Congress don't necessarily want to step back from. So, yeah, I think you're definitely seeing Republicans and conservatives who have been very skeptical of the WHO's handling of things. I think that no one would say that the case, the situation this week was positive for kind of this embattled organization. But you're definitely trying to see how lawmakers are going to approach this in the upcoming appropriations process. It's, I think, going to be an even more confusing approach for members. So we were talking about this a little bit before we started, but I want to talk about it for the audience. Um, Sometimes I feel like we have too much information. We're swimming in statistics and charts and trend lines. And I know I'm completely confused about how safe it really is to leave my house and go someplace. And I know others are too. Margot, I kind of love this story that you worked on this week that surveyed epidemiologists about what they consider safe. Um, is that, you know, what, you, you talked about this a little bit, you know, but what is sort of, what are some of the numbers that we really should and shouldn't be looking at? So we did this story where we basically went to um, thousands of epidemiologists of whom about 500 uh, responded to a detailed survey. And we said, okay, like we don't know exactly what the future looks like, but you're an epidemiologist. You probably have as as good a picture of anyone as how this is going to unfold. Assume things go the way you think they're going to go. 
when are you going to start going back to doing things? You know, when are you going to send your kids to school? Uh, when are you going to start opening your mail without being nervous about it? Uh, when are you going to hug someone as a greeting? So a couple of things. I mean, one is that I did think that it was surprising what a diversity of views there were among epidemiologists. I think it's just a reminder that they don't have any special knowledge that we have. I think they have expertise in how to think about risks and how to weigh risks. But really, you know, some people are just comfortable with more risk than others, either because of the circumstances of their household, you know, people who uh, don't have at-risk people in their home or uh, you know, who aren't that worried about getting sick may be willing to take more risks than people who have really vulnerable people in their household or because of the place they live. I mean, I think, you know, all of us are sort of working for national news organizations and we tend to talk about this disease as if it's happening in the same way in every place. And we know that that's not true. The risk is just not the same everywhere. Um, but the other thing that I found uh, just really striking about this project is we gave them opportunities after each of these questions to just provide some comments to basically give us a quote about, you know, how they made their choice. And I spent a good part of last week just like reading through hundreds and thousands really of comments on these questions. And when you read them, you just realize that like epidemiologists are just like us. Like, you know, there's like no, like, you know, it's just they're people and they're like, well, I, my hair looks terrible and I'm worried about getting a haircut, but also I just like don't want to look like this anymore. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that the numbers themselves are somewhat helpful. It seems like there are some things that the epidemiologists think are like basically okay. Like I think you can just bring in your mail and open it when it comes in without having to worry too much about it. Uh, there are some things that they really think are just a bad idea. They think we should not be going back to large sporting events or concerts or plays, these kind of mass gathering events. The reason why they said is, first of all, just getting lots of people close together for long periods of time is a really high risk activity. Doing it in situations where people might be drinking or yelling or cheering, that is like additional risk. But they also said like, it's just like probably not worth it. We can watch a play on the internet. We can watch a sporting event on television. There's not enough upside to justify the risk. Whereas something like sending your kids to school, you saw that they were extremely torn, you know? I think many of them said, this is a higher risk thing, but maybe it's worth it because it's important for my kids' educational and social development. It's important for me to be able to have a normal life and to be able to continue with my work that I value and that is important to fighting the epidemic. So you know, I think we have to think about like what's dangerous and then also what's worth it. And that is the kind of thing that the epidemiologists are thinking through too. It's frustrating because it's not like an easy answer. It's not like do this, don't do that. But I think it's more, here's some ways to think about the choices in the way that experts do. I think this, the school thing, Margot, is very interesting. Um, I'm really curious to see what the schools do in the fall, because if you look at a lot of the European countries, they did things in kind of a reverse way that we've done in the U.S. Like most in most places, kids were um, that academic year was canceled. It, so the, the schools were actually canceled longer than like the businesses were. But in a lot of the European countries, they actually started reopening the schools sooner before the businesses were reopened. And it's, you know, it's interesting with kids because that, you know, the question of asymptomatic transmission comes in as well, because we know that kids are at much lower risk of getting serious cases. But the question is, do they transmit the disease? So you saw when the WHO came out with that announcement on Monday, some people were immediately jumping on that, like saying, oh, isn't this 
great news. Like now we can reopen the schools and not worry about it so much. Um, so anyway, I just think I think that what happens with the schools is a particularly hard and interesting decision that policymakers are grappling with right now. The schools issue is super interesting. I was watching the health committee had a hearing this week with state education officials, the Denver superintendent, and they were talking a lot about it seemed less a question of like, do schools open or do they stay closed? And more of a question of like, how exactly do you balance this? There was a lot of talk about, okay, maybe the kids are in school for 40% of their learning and then distance for 60%. But that also raises a lot of questions in terms of like, okay, if parents need to go back to work, but their kids aren't in school one day, how do you match that up for, you know, an entire district? So the school's question has so many questions. And obviously, there are then so many questions about the widening achievement gap and social development and all of those things that schools are so helpful for and, you know, children really need. One more thing that just jumped out at me from the survey that um, I don't know what to do with this information, but it's been gnawing at me since I read all of these comments is just that I think we think about the progress as being relatively linear, that it's going to get sort of safer and safer, and we're going to be able to do more and more things over time. But, you know, people talk about a second wave. I think we're familiar with this idea that there's a risk in the future that there's going to be like another big um, increase in the the transmission of this disease that will lead to other lockdowns. But I think there's a more subtle thing, too, that the epidemiologists point out, which is that a lot of the ways that they are trying to minimize their risk of doing certain activities is just doing them outdoors, right? So, you know, instead of going to a restaurant and sitting inside where you're uh, breathing the same air as a lot of other people, you go to a restaurant, but you sit on a patio. That's a safer way to go to a restaurant. Uh, one person wrote, you know, I sent my kid to daycare, but the daycare is conducting everything outside in the playground, and I feel more comfortable with outside, and on days when it rains, I'm going to keep my kid at home. These are things that get harder and harder to do as we get into the fall and winter. You know, depends on what part of the country you're in, but right now we're in the summer. The weather is good, and some people say that that weakens the virus. We don't really know that, but it certainly does enable people to do a lot more things outside Um, either totally outside or with all the windows open so there's a lot more ventilation. Those options are going to start to disappear as we get into the colder months, particularly in the northern parts of the country. And so I do wonder if, you know, maybe it's okay to send your kid to camp now, but in the fall, in October, November, when they're in a closed classroom with all the windows shut, uh, maybe the danger will be different. And I think we have to prepare ourselves for the possibility that, you know, we're going to sort of want to dial up and dial back some of the activities that we're doing. And I think that for me at least, is like really psychologically hard, you know? It's like once you feel like you're kind of over the hump, I think it's really hard to then retreat back to the old forms of being careful again. It's also really hard to make plans. I mean, people are trying to figure out, you know, particularly I feel bad for college students and uh, people who are trying to figure out if they're going to go someplace else in the fall. But yeah, it's hard for everybody. Well, I want to talk about Congress for a minute since we have Mel here. Um, Back in D.C., Congress is in session, but you would hardly know it. Uh, It feels like lawmakers have kind of declared the pandemic over and moved on to other things. Um, Mel, catch us up on what Congress is working on when it comes to the pandemic. It's kind of interesting. Um, Like you said, the Senate's in, the House is, you know, doing a lot of committee work right now. On a committee level, you know, there's some focus on the pandemic. The Health Committee has had a couple of hearings and has some more planned, but they're not necessarily looking at what's happening with the pandemic right now. You're getting a little bit more of that in the House where you have this select coronavirus committee that's held some hearings. A panel yesterday had a hearing in the Senate on the PPP program. But again, these are all really specific aspects of it. And while there's a lot of discussion about the next coronavirus relief bill, and there seems to, 
you know, finally, after a lot of weeks of back and forth, be some agreement that another round of legislation, I believe this will be the fifth legislation is needed um, to respond to this pandemic. There doesn't seem to be a lot of, you know, stress of trying to get this together. I think a lot of people are talking about, okay, let's try to get something by July 4th. But just logistically, the House isn't scheduled to be in until the end of this month. These bills have taken longer and longer to come to agreement on with each passing measure. It's kind of tough to see at this point without much negotiation going on how that will be. But Congress can act quickly when they want to. So I think, you know, we'll see what ends up happening in the next couple of weeks. I feel like all the attention right now is sort of shifted to police reform. And I'm wondering if there could end up being like one bill that would be the next coronavirus bill and police reform. I think that's an option. I've seen that Democrats have sort of said at this point they don't necessarily want that. But I do also think that it could be difficult for Congress to pass a big piece of legislation right now, even with how much attention, you know, racial injustice and policing has gotten in the last couple of weeks to pass a big measure without any coronavirus related measures. So I think we'll see what happens there. Well, and the administration still hasn't even gotten all the money out the door from from the bills passed in March. Um, Like HHS has been extremely slow in getting the money to provide from this $175 billion that we're supposed to go to hospitals, etc. You're um, anticipating my next question. <laughs> I wanted to mention this because I wrote about it. Um, and yeah, say remember all of that, those billions of dollars of Congress appropriated for healthcare providers back at the end of March. Well, this week, the Department of Health and Human Services finally said it was making some of that money available to doctors and clinics that take Medicaid, but not Medicare. Um, if you remember, they rushed a lot of the money out the door based on Medicare reimbursement from the previous year, except lots of pediatricians and OBGYNs and children's hospitals don't get Medicare reimbursement, and lots of those Medicaid-only facilities operate on very thin margins and serve the most vulnerable patients, and are and now apparently, even though the money is being made available, they're going to have to apply, and at the earliest, it would go out 10 days after their applications are approved. What took HHS so long to actually remember that there were health providers in trouble who are not, who don't get Medicare? Yeah. Well, okay. So part of this goes to how the CARES Act was written and the language of the CARES Act. So I've talked to committee folks and agency folks, and it sounds like there were differences over whether the legislation would allow HHS to um, funnel those some of those funds through the states. So it actually would if the states had gotten the funding because the states run the Medicaid programs, they actually could have gotten the money to the Medicaid providers a lot more quickly because they're they're the ones that are paying them anyway. HHS doesn't have a lot of the information for the Medicaid providers. It's not a function that they normally do. And so apparently the lawyers reached this conclusion that um, the money would have to go directly from the agency to the providers and that states couldn't be part of the process. Although I will say they did go to the states and say, hey, we don't have this information. You need to, like, help us out here. Um, and they gave them like they gave them like four days notice to yeah. do it. Yeah. So so um, so like I actually think there probably would have been a way that Congress could have written the legislation to sort of facilitate the awarding of these funds. And the whole reason you saw HHS direct the money to the Medicare providers is because that's something that's relatively easy for them to do. They were able to set up this portal. They already have relationships with the providers, et cetera. Um, But, you know, kind of in the background through all of this, you've had the Medicaid providers, the behavioral health centers in particular. They've been a very loud voice in all of this saying, hey, uh, we're 
dealing with this lockdown situation where we can't provide services anymore. And also, by the way, people are dealing with increased mental health issues because they can't go to work and they're worried about the virus and all of these kind of um, snowballing effects from shutting down your economy amid a pandemic. And we need money to deal with this. Um, We already operate on thin margins. And so there's been a real outcry from these providers. So I think that's why you finally saw HHS kind of make this announcement this week. There's some other like side issue where the behavioral health centers are saying they're actually still kind of being largely cut out of the Medicaid dollars um, because apparently there's a stipulation that if they had received some amount of money um, based on their Medicare payments, that they would be made ineligible for the money based on the Medicaid payments. Um, and like the behavioral health centers, they only receive 5% of their payments are, are, are Medicare. It's largely Medicaid. So there's a lot of kind of ill feeling among providers. Um, it's kind of interesting because when Congress passed, you know, this huge sum of money back in March, my, my first thought was this is going to create a real competition among providers because everybody's been going to be trying to get at that, at that money. And I'm sure the committee staff have had lobbyists knocking down their doors for the last couple of months as, um, you know, they were trying to write the legislation and then as HHS was trying to, to get the money out. But we should see some of these providers for low-income Americans start getting some of these funds sooner now that this portal is now being rolled out where they can apply for the money. I also think there's this tension between speed and targeting that, you know, we're seeing play out in real time, which is a lot of healthcare providers were facing acute needs, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the epidemic. They had been asked to shut down all of their uh, income generating uh, elective procedures. They suddenly needed to get personal protective equipment for their staff at a time in which there were global shortages. Many had to do, you know, major retrofitting of their hospitals so that they could expand their ICU capacity, buy more ventilators, and sort of get ready for this onslaught of COVID patients. And I think that the thinking at um, CMS, at least initially, was like, we just got to get the dollars out the door. Um, And I think doing the kinds of things that Paige is talking about, having like relatively targeted payments, you know, who are the people that really saw the most COVID patients? What are the places that are facing the most financial strain? You know, who are the places that typically get most of their funding from the states? That's harder, you know, like that actually takes a long time. If you think about how long it takes CMS generally to write regulations for major legislation, you know, it's often months and years. And this was the kind of stuff that they've been doing on the scale of weeks. So I do think that there is a need for continued scrutiny of how they do it and who is getting left out. And I do think that there's like a fun lobbying story about the pylon of all of these different healthcare providers trying to figure out how to get their piece. But I think that one way, if you want to be sympathetic to CMS, I think one way of understanding their early actions of giving a lot of money to these based on these Medicaid, Medicare payouts was not that they were like dumb and thought that that was the only way to do it, but that they knew that that was a thing they could do fast and they hoped that they could then kind of clean up after it uh, with things that involved more subtlety. And again, you know, as Paige said, they haven't spent all the money yet. And I think there's a frustration about the slowness and then also a frustration about the lack of targeting. And I think those things are almost in perfect tension. I want to add something because I think it's relevant, um, which is that early on in this, the states asked the federal government for waiver authority so that they could make retainer payments to some of these Medicaid providers. Um, and the federal government has not said anything. And on the, pr- the press call to talk about this money, finally setting up this portal for Medicaid providers, I asked about that waiver authority and they wouldn't answer my question. They said it was off topic. I was just going to add, I mean, there. I guess you, you could also argue that there was a certain logic in getting the money out to Medicare providers sooner because they certainly have had 
um, way more to deal with in terms of COVID patients um, because, you know, obviously majorities of those hospitalized and such were people over the age that would have been on Medicare, presumably. Um, And then the other thing I'd add is uh, there were hospitals in some areas which didn't see the outbreaks that were expected that had expended uh, large resources to try to, you know, beef up their supply of ventilators, PPE, transform entire, you know, uh, floors into COVID wards, wards and then just didn't see that materialize. So there's that, that aspect of it as well. So let's move on. Um, one, one last topic this week, and I know we've talked about it, but I feel like we have to keep talking about it. And that is sort of what I'm calling the nursing home mess. Um, how COVID-19 spread almost unchecked through the nation's nursing homes. As we already know, at least according to HHS, there have been at least 32,000 nursing home deaths, not cases, deaths. So almost a third of the Americans who've died came from nursing homes. Now we're seeing some of the related fallout. Long-term care facilities are having trouble getting staff, not that much of a surprise. Many facilities are still not providing testing or PPE, uh, and the AP is reporting that some nursing homes are trying to claim low-income residents' stimulus checks to offset the cost of their care, even though they're not supposed to count as income. Um, anybody else feel like the sort of the plight of people in uh, in sort of congregate care facilities in general, but in nursing homes in particular, is is not being looked at with the amount of alarm this should be warranting? I absolutely agree that it that it hasn't. And it's, it's kind of surprised me, honestly. I guess for two reasons. One is that something we have known from really the outset of the pandemic is the especially marked high, high risk to the elderly. And as the pandemic was kind of spreading through the world, we saw what it did in, you know, nursing homes in other countries. So, you know, there was there was that aspect of it. So you could argue maybe we should have been better prepared or maybe, you know, the administration could have given better guidance to governors on what to do, how to keep the virus out, how to make sure that there are better supplies and better PPE, etc. Um, I think I think another part of it is, you know, as members of the media, we tend to focus for for better or worse when when the virus kills someone who's younger, you know, because typically the seasonal flu doesn't kill people that are younger and healthier. And that's been really surprising and and certainly really sad. So like when you see someone who's young and healthy in their 20s or 30s, there'll be a lot of stories written about that person. Um, But, you know, I guess it's Every death, every death is a tragedy, but it's perhaps more expected or less less surprising when the virus is killing people that are, are in their 70s or 80s and already had very frail health. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've also had pretty poor data from a lot of the nursing homes that haven't been reporting. So even now, the picture is still becoming clear uh, clearer on what the actual toll is. So the CMS has actually... A couple a month or two ago, I think in April, issued a rule that nursing homes have to start reporting specific information. And then last week, I believe they released, um, started releasing some of that information. Not all of the nursing homes have reported, I think like 90% or something had. So we're still waiting on a few. But that data showed that around one third of deaths have occurred in nursing homes. So it's certainly a huge toll. And, you know, I, I think in retrospect, there's probably going to be a lot of going back and looking at how we could have lowered the overall death toll. I mean, that's kind of like an easy and obvious way, I guess. If we had really wanted to kind of stem this like massive death toll in the country, the most obvious way would have been to protect the nursing homes. 
Yeah, I, you know, I wrote my first story about the impending long-term care crisis when I joined CQ in 1986. Um, and it's now 2020 and none of this has been resolved yet. I mean, is this, is this maybe enough to, to, to shock people into doing something about the long-term care situation in the U.S.? It's, it possibly is. I mean, anecdotally, I can say that, like, people I know have, you know, given second thoughts to do I put, you know, an aging relative, a parent or a grandparent in a nursing home right now, even if, you know, it typically would be an easy decision because that's where they can get care that they need. And this is something that people are probably going to be thinking twice about. But a lot of these challenges with nursing homes, I think two things. One is, with, in terms of the attention, I mean, the first outbreak of this coronavirus in the U.S. was in a nursing home. I think it's been one of the most consistent things throughout this entire pandemic in the U.S. has been the hit to nursing homes. And possibly that's why, you know, maybe the attention that we gave to nursing home outbreak in March in the beginning of April has maybe changed a little bit in the last several of months as now we're sort of getting more data and giving it another look again. But I also think that, you know, nursing homes are still going through a lot of these challenges to get PPE, to get enough tests, to figure out how and how frequently to test their workers. And insurance coverage is, you know, something that several of our colleagues have written about in the last couple of days as well. But I do think that these are long-term challenges that CMS has not necessarily found a solution for over a very long time at this point. And I think we can all hope that this might be a turning point for that. But I think that's yet to be seen. I also think the, the what's happened in American nursing homes, I think, really reveals like many of the weaknesses in their response overall. So, you know, we had a shortage of personal protective equipment that became really important uh, because nursing home employees didn't have the ability to protect the residents. Uh, we have problems with testing, and so that made it hard to really assess, you know, when there were at-risk people coming into nursing homes, when there was spread in nursing homes until you started seeing a lot of really acute illness. I think, obviously, nursing homes operate without a whole lot of cushion financially. I mean, we talked about hospitals that have small margins, but, you know, a lot of hospitals took a big revenue hit early in this, and they had these kind of huge reserves, and they were able to keep soldiering on. I think nursing homes, when they're faced with a new challenge, just don't have the same kind of cushion. And then, you know, of course, we had this older, more vulnerable population. They were more medically frail. They were more vulnerable to having really serious illness when they got this disease. And of course, they were living in close quarters. And then I guess the final thing that I would say is that if COVID never got into a nursing home, like a lot of this stuff wouldn't matter. And the reason why, in part, that COVID is getting into nursing homes is when you think about the staff that work in nursing homes, they are very low paid staff. They, you know, are uh, the kinds of people who live in crowded housing, who um, have a lot of medical vulnerabilities themselves. They are also uh, parts of the very high risk groups for this disease. And they, through no fault of their own, ended up being more likely to transmit this disease into the nursing home. But I think it reveals all the other groups that are also at risk, right? People that have to ride public transit, people that live in crowded housing, people that um, you know can't afford uh, medical care who don't have health insurance. That's who works in our nursing homes right now. And if you think about the logistics of it, it's just really hard too. Like if you're already having staff shortage problems, then the idea that a few residents in a nursing home get COVID. So then you're trying to isolate them in a separate wing and you're trying to designate particular staff to just care for the COVID patients so that they're not, you know, 
trans at risk for transmitting the virus from the sick patients to the healthy patients. And that's a whole challenge in and of itself, as you already have the staffing shortages and then um, and then also the PPE shortages. And just on that point, you also have so many nursing home staff who work at agencies and are going in and out of multiple different nursing homes as opposed to just working in one facility, increasing the risk of spread between nursing homes. Yeah, I I think there's going to be much more of this to come. Well, that is all the time we have for the news this week. Now we will play my interview with Mike Mackert, and then we will come back for our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Michael Mackert. He is director of the Center for Health Communication and a professor at the Department of Population Health at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas, Austin. You must have some kind of large uh, business card. Welcome to the podcast. It's, it's great to be here today. I keep talking about how there are professionals in public health who do nothing but study how best to communicate health messages to the public, and you are one of those people. So I'm really excited to have you here. Tell us exactly what you do and what you teach. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really fortunate. So our Center for Health Communication is, as far as we know, the only academic center in the country that is jointly shared uh, between, in this case, the Moody College of Communication and Dell Medical School. Um, So I'm actually also faculty in the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations. And so I get to both teach advertising students traditional advertising, but then also teach health communication classes where students from communication, public health, all kinds of backgrounds at the university have the chance to learn how communication can be part of solving health problems. As we are seeing, and we will talk about in a moment, failure to communicate in healthcare can have significant bad consequences. That is to say the least. When I talk about what health communication is, the definition that we use all the time is that it's both the science and the art of using communication to advance the health and well-being of people and populations. And the science part is what I always spend time on, because in working with colleagues in public health and medicine, there's this tendency to be like, oh, it's a soft, squishy skill, or it's you had a really good mentor who taught you how to talk to patients. But there's an evidence base here. And I have a colleague who studies how do you break bad news? And it's a thing you can be taught, you can be trained, you can get better at. And as soon as we started talking about evidence-based health communication, a lot of colleagues and partners in public health and medicine were like, oh, there's actually science to this and there are better ways to do it. And we don't have to reinvent this or sort of use our intuition to do it every time. Like we can rely on decades of research into how to communicate effectively about health issues. And that's been a really helpful thing for us. And it was also partly adopting that evidence-based language of, you know, evidence-based medicine and, and those kinds of things like really helped folks understand what we were doing on the communication side and how that could be part of public health and medical interventions. So if you had to give a grade to uh, the public health messaging about coronavirus and COVID-19, see, we don't even agree on the name, uh, what would it be? You're a professor. Oh, boy. I I don't want to give a grade. Um, You know, I think there's one of the challenges I've seen is there are so many institutions and organizations that are all independently looking to put out messages about COVID-19. It's really sort of to me underscored how big of a need there is to better coordinate and disseminate the good messages. You know, there's 50 states and a national government and who knows how many local health departments all producing a social media graphic about social distancing. And, you know, it could be that there's some really tiny local health department somewhere that has the best one. And we should all be using that. And so I think it's that's what it's really high to me is there's a lot of individual grades, not one big overall grade. What's an example of sort of a public health communications uh, project or technique or something that really works, something that people should think about emulating or think about how well they learned something? 
Um, you know, one of the tools that we use a lot, and, and when I say it to people, at first it feels a little like high school classish, I think, in some ways. Uh, but it's the thing I teach my advertising students to do, which is remembering that, you know, you're not talking to the general public. There is no such thing as the general public. You are talking to a lot of individual humans. And so one of the techniques we use to build more effective health messages is that you have a persona. And so you try to imagine sort of like who's one person you're trying to talk to about social social distancing. Because then if you understand how they are going to hear the thing you're saying, it's not that they're going to hear it wrong. Like they just might hear it in a way that isn't what you're intending. And I think that thinking of talking to one person makes it easier to think through how people are really going to hear the message you're sending. And what are, I mean, what are, I assume you do case studies. I mean, what are some case studies that, that have worked really well? What public health messages actually have gotten through? Um, you know, I mean, one of the most successful health communication campaigns that I think a lot of people are probably familiar with is the tips from former smokers effort. And there's a lot of evidence that that campaign really changed a lot of, like had a very big measurable public health impact. Um, and one of the other big lessons there too is that there were real resources put behind that. You know, one of the real challenges in, in health communication broadly, I think, is that we tend to think that, you know, they're going to hear it once and then people are going to change their behavior. And that's not how humans work. And, you know, there's a reason big brands have multi-million dollar marketing budgets. And if we think communication is a tool in helping address a public health issue, we need to think about how you basically properly dose a message. So obviously this week we've seen a case study on how not to communicate the confusion over the WHO's comments about asymptomatic transmission of the virus, how easy it is to spread bad information. And this wasn't even on purpose. It appeared to be kind of by accident. Are there some best practices for health communication in global emergencies or even regional emergencies like we're facing now? Definitely. The, the CDC has a crisis and emergency risk communication manual that was last updated, I think it was a couple of years ago. And, you know, when COVID started really happening, a lot of people were looking for messaging. You know, you go back and look at that manual. It has a lot of the right stuff in it. You know, be empathetic with your target audience and understand all the things. I mean, I think the fact that we just don't know a lot about COVID-19 yet and it's changing, even people who are doing everything perfectly, like perfectly in air quotes, the knowledge is science is going to change. And a week later, it will look like they said the wrong thing. And so I think this has presented a particularly hard challenge for people communicating about it just because we don't know enough and the science itself is changing pretty rapidly. Well, we saw that with masks. I mean, early on, I think there was a fear. I mean, there was an actual shortage. So they didn't want the public sort of snatching up masks that health professionals needed. And then when it got more obvious that there was asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission of the virus, suddenly it made more sense for people to be wearing masks. And I know there were efforts to communicate that you should not be using masks that health professionals need. But of course, then we saw the shortage so bad that health professionals were using, you know, cloth and surgical masks too. I mean, this is a case where facts on the ground changed. And so the message changed. I feel like the message didn't include the part about we're changing this message because the facts on the ground changed. And it felt very arbitrary to a lot of people. Arbitrary for sure. I think that the example I'd always use forever is people get annoyed with like, oh, eggs are good for me one week and they're bad for me the next week. And that's how science normally progresses. And I think right now, a lot more people are getting to look into the way research is done and science is done. And there's a lot of research that's being published in some of these kind of open repositories and open access things where articles that haven't even been peer reviewed are now accessible to the public. And so I think there is a little bit of this 
peek behind the curtain is not the right word because people are getting more raw research papers, I think, than they would otherwise, which only increases the likelihood that something is going to be out there, gain some traction in the media and be retracted or it wouldn't have passed peer review. And I both admire and value the ability to try and get information out as quickly as possible. But I think the speed at which we're communicating science right now also has a downside in that there's going to be more like, oops, that study turned out not to be accurate or, oh, their data didn't say what they thought it was saying. And it's going to increase the sense that kind of public health people and those communicating about it don't know what they're talking about. Like this is stuff that normally takes place over a lot more time and it's it's being compressed and more is happening in public than normal, I think. So in this particular pandemic, we also have the overlay of politics. Um, how do health communication professionals deal with the politicization of science? Oh man, one of the ways I start to think about answering that is in all of our work, no matter what we're doing, we try hard to be realistic about where communication can make a difference. There are some health issues where there isn't a perfect message probably to change someone's mind. Like we we have to be realistic that sometimes it's a policy solution. Um, and so one of the things we spend a lot of time thinking about is who are audiences where communication can make a difference. And so when something like masks are politicized, communication is not going to change the mind of someone for whom wearing a mask or not is now officially a part of their deep political identity and how they're expressing it. Like not going to happen. But for a lot of people who don't identify that politically in the first place, like, well, okay, then probably we can get some messages to them that would help them understand the importance of masks and promote them as something that's part of the bigger public health response. So it's, it's just, I think, more being realistic about what we can do with communication and not that there's some secret thing we can do that's all of a sudden going to change people's minds. Because that feels really hard to do and expecting an awful lot about communication. So last question, because you're the expert, how could both public health professionals and the journalists who are responsible for getting those messages to the public in a lot of cases do a better job with this pandemic? I think one of the biggest issues that I've seen or I can imagine being better too is the the importance of empathy. You definitely hear some people in public office talking about this, but like I also wish there were easy, simple answers because I'm also a human who's living in the world right now like given we currently know, here's what, you know, we think the recommendations are, I think a little bit more vulnerability and willingness to express that when speaking about public health recommendations and official would go a long way, I would hope, to some people being a little bit more understanding when the thing about masks changed from week to week. It's like, oh, that person was also doing their best. And they're also probably scared while doing their job and trying to get this out to all of us. Um, I think it would just increase sort of the human connection that is sometimes missing between people, you know, on TV talking about this with all the people at home watching and hearing the messages that are being sent. Maybe a little humility, too. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that, that doesn't come naturally to either journalists or scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Macker, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's great to have been here. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Paige, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, um, so the story I picked is by The Advocate in Louisiana by Sam Carlin, and it's headlined, Louisiana is spending millions on contact tracing, 
but less than half of infected are answering the phone. And I thought this piece did a really good job of kind of delving into the real challenges of carrying out contact tracing. You know, a lot of us have been writing about the importance of contact tracing, um, but what the Louisiana Health Department has found is that when contact tracers actually were trying to call up people who had been known to have contact with somebody infected, fewer than half the people were actually answering their phones. And it just kind of underscores the difficulty in carrying all of this out. Like you can have you know, trained contact tracers, but if you if they aren't able to get hold of people, if the public isn't cooperating or helping out with this, it's going to be really hard to try to keep the virus tamped down as you're trying to reach out to every single person and, you know, someone with the infection could have gotten in touch with. And this has um, sparked just a lot of concern in the state, apparently, about um, how effective contract tracing is even going to be as the state, you know, tries to open up over the next couple of months. So I thought it was a really, really good story um, and one that we may see, you know, replicated in other states as well. Margot, yours is kind of a follow on to that, right? Yeah, so mine is from a team, um, the international team of reporters at the Washington Post, Chico Harlan, Loveday Morris, Michael Birnbaum, and Stefano Petrelli, called coronavirus infections haven't spiked since Europe loosened lockdowns. There are many theories about why. And uh, I feel like this circles back a little bit to our discussion about how much we still don't know. Uh, This story just looked at what happened in a number of European countries that have loosened their lockdowns and allowed people to go back to work and to restaurants and to schools and daycare. And what they found is that the kind of uh, rebound in transmission of COVID just hasn't really happened in a lot of those countries. And uh, experts are puzzling out why. I think this story for me felt like the first piece of good news that I've heard in a long time that maybe uh, we're learning things. So among the theories were this uh, theory that was consistent with the epidemiologist survey that doing more things outside maybe will reduce transmission. Another theory is that wearing masks actually makes a really big difference. Um, and so those are things, you know, at least in the short term, we can do here. Um, I hope that there will continue to be research on what happens in Europe and what happens in the United States. But um, it's possible that the worst case scenario may not come to pass, that maybe there are ways to prevent uh, a New York or a, a Northern Italy type situation from happening in every place where people start to go back to more normal activities if they're wise about them would be nice. Mel? So my story is by the Washington Post's Greg Jaffe. Um, The pandemic hit and this car became home for a family of four. Now they're fighting to get out. And I just thought this was one of the most devastating stories that I'd read in a while. Um, Looking at a family, mom and dad, and two kids under 10, basically who have been living in hotels and motels for years, bought an RV, moved into a mobile home lot, and then the pandemic hit. Mom and dad were out of work, they got towed, and they've been living out of their car in trying to find safe parking lots um, outside of Orlando, where they live in Florida. Just a really devastating story, but it also looked at, you know, there are a lot of steps that Congress and the administration have tried to take to help people to weather the pandemic. And this looked at, you know, this family had not gotten the $3,400 they expected to get in stimulus payments. They hadn't been able to get, the father hadn't been able to get unemployment from the state of Florida. And these are things that extra $600 in unemployment that the federal government has added on for through July. These are things that, you know, officials have said, look, we're here helping. And I couldn't help thinking how many other people in the U.S. are like this family and haven't gotten this money and, you know, had just gotten to the point where, okay, we've made it to the point we were trying so hard to go to, and now the pandemic has taken that all away. 
I think that was the the part that infuriated me the most about that story and everything infuriated me about that story. But the idea that they were owed all this money and that, you know, the mom had just been on the phone constantly and hadn't been able to basically claim any of the money that was there. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those things where public policy tries, but sometimes life intervenes. Um, Well, my story this week also harkens back to something we were talking about, that big pot of money that HHS has been distributing to healthcare providers. Uh, It's from the New York Times. It's called Hospitals Got Bailouts and Furloughed Thousands While Paying CEO Millions. It's by Jessica Silver-Greenberg, Jesse Drucker, and David Enrich. And while Medicaid providers have been teetering on the edge of having to close their doors, uh, hospitals got giant pots of money they were supposed to use to buy PPE and keep their workers on the payroll, except not all of them did. The reporters looked at SEC and tax filings uh, and found that lots of for-profit and other hospitals with big endowments have been laying off nurses and other workers regardless. While some of the CEOs have taken pay cuts, uh, they've given up far less in compensation than the janitors and cafeteria workers and nurses' aides who've been furloughed or lost their jobs. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even though we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Paige? PW underscore Cunningham. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. Margo. At Sanger Cats. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.